Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. So welcome back to another episode of Wild and Exposed. We have got probably the pinnacle of wild that we're going to talk about today with a special guest, Brad Josephs, uh, with NatHab Adventures. And Brad is guided in, well, actually, I'm just going to let him tell you. So welcome to the podcast, Brad. We appreciate you giving us your time this morning. Wow, thanks. It's really an honor. I really, really love you guys' podcast. And um, and thanks for giving me a chance to uh, talk about something that's uh, really dear to my heart. Yeah, it's the, the snow leopard, which yeah. I'm in, really in love with. And I, and I want to send some messages out um, to the world about how we can save that species, which really is one of the coolest species in the world. Absolutely. With Well, without a doubt, one of the coolest species in the world. And one of the you know, those pinnacle species for a photographer, you think of snow leopard photography and you think of the guys that have done it for National Geographic, that basically the only images they got were, you know, because they got out, found trails and put camera traps out and that was it. And now um, things have changed quite a bit. Uh, So Brad, before we get into that, and and I'm excited to, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background? How did you become involved with Nat Habitat or NatHab as a tour company and become a guide? Um, well, I guess as far as, as me, I, um, I've been a, obsessed with wildlife kind of since I was born. So it's always been um, my main focus and main interest in everything else. And so luckily I was able to uh, get a career out of it. So I started out going to school, wildlife biology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And I moved up to Alaska, originally from North Carolina, mostly because I wanted to be closer to bears. And, uh, and I got close to bears. And then I got a job with the Department of Fish and Game, same place that, that Drew worked at McNeil River, did the same job he did. And that kind of taught me bears and, so, and also how to guide bear, bears. And so I was one of the first guides um, to start guiding on the Katmai Coast. So I was just kind of a, a guy with the right passion about bears at the right time. So I really got in early. Um, that that industry now, I still work every summer doing it. It's become very much more popular. But um, so I've been guiding out there for over 20 years. Uh, but that's how I got involved with NatHab uh, Natural Habitat Adventures. They started to um, run trips out there, and I was their local naturalist. Became an expedition leader with them, and I guess I did good enough. They asked me to start guiding in Churchill for polar bears. So I did that for about 15 years. Then an opportunity opened up that they needed help with their China program. And since Panda's a bear and I was a bear person, they picked me. So I've been guiding over in China since 2008. That kind of, you know, led me over to um, doing all kinds of stuff with them, like scouting trips. I guide in Borneo now too, still guide in Alaska. This snow leopard thing is, uh, is something that's is probably my newest passion. So I've been, been working on that for a few years. It's actually not with Natural Habitat. They don't have a snow leopard program yet. They might in the future. But right now I work with a company with snow leopards called Voyager Expeditions, which is partnered with the Snow Leopard Trust. How did that transition take place? Just the fact that you were already able to get over there and already familiar with kind of the, the policies that were allowing you to get there, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, originally, I, I guess my first love of snow leopards started in probably 99 when I was guiding out in a remote camp in Alaska and one of the clients left behind a book called The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson. And that's a, like a famous book about 
Snow Leopard, basically, Peter Matheson's the author, and he joined um, George Schaller, who's a legendary wildlife biologist. He's the one that saved the giant panda from extinction, figured out jaguars for the first time. Just It did some really groundbreaking um, studies in the 70s and 80s, kind of like the James Bond or something maybe of uh, wildlife biology. He's the guy that would go places that <laughs> nobody had been before, that are really spooky, dangerous, difficult. That was that was his gig and really, really endangered un unknown animals. So I read that book, Matheson joined Schaller as he went into the Himalayas to discover the, um, the snow leopard and uh, for the first time, just do basic groundbreaking, really basic figuring out what, you know, where they live, what they eat. I mean, they didn't know anything about them really. They just knew that the this is a cat that looked like that. Anyway, so long story short, I read that book and immediately bought, next time I got back into town, I bought a ticket to India. So I had to get to the Himalayas. I have to see Snow Leopard Country. And so that was my first time in Snow Leopard Country just by myself. Well, I joined a woman from Sweden or something and did three weeks up in Kanchenjunga, um, trekking in Kanchenjunga National Park, which is in Sikkim, which is kind of just over there in the eastern Indian Himalayas. Of course, I didn't see a snow leopard. Didn't figure I would. But I just wanted to be in Snow Leopard Country. And one of the days that we were acclimating to our um, altitude, about 15,000 feet, we needed to stay for three days. And I started hiking up into these box canyons and valleys and stuff. And I, I found a big rock. I climbed up on that rock because it was a great place for me to kind of look around and see. And there was cat scat. I mean, I don't know because cats like to, a lot of times they'll poop on a certain spot and they'll do it over and over again. There was a big pile of this large carnivore that looked very much like cat scat and it was the only thing it could be was a snow leopard. So that just sent electric spot, you know, tingles down my spine. So 20 years later, I'm guiding in China when, and the guy that I guide with, his name's um, Philip, he's Tibetan. He wanted to go up and wanted to look for snow leopards with me. So we went up to Qinghai province, which is in the Qinghai Tibetan plateau. It's like 15 to 16,000 feet. And we spent two weeks um, in November, minus 30 degrees at 16,000 feet looking for snow leopards. We didn't really know what we were looking for. We had some local guides, but it just, we weren't, we weren't efficiently looking for snow leopards. We could see tracks in the snow all over the place. So we were up in the Qinghai Plateau. We drove maybe 20 hours um, up these snow-covered trails to get into a nomadic yak herders camp where we stayed. I mean, we're talking about super cold, really, really difficult in the elevation. But we could see snow leopard tracks everywhere. But there's a reason why they call snow leopards the mountain ghost. is because they're virtually invisible. And there's not lots of them, but I, we could tell they were all over the place because it was fresh snow and see the tracks. And we searched and searched and searched and searched and never actually saw one. But I started posting stuff on my Instagram about looking for snow leopards and how excited I was about being in snow leopard country. And I got this, this message from... This super amazing guy named Bazad Larry, born and raised in India, but also raised in the United States. And so he's kind of a, a mixture of Indian and American. And he has got a snow leopard obsession and started this small company to help, you know, with snow leopard tourism, to go in and look for snow leopards. So um, I got this message from Bazad Larry, uh, who has a small company with snow leopard tourism. And uh, he said, you know, Brad, I've been following you because I, I really like your commitment to conservation. And I really need somebody to help me lead these snow leopard trips. So I said, I'm your man. So I went over there last winter and um, kind of did a scouting trip where I went. And uh, sure enough, saw my first snow leopard in the wild finally. And I had tears running down. It was uh, absolutely incredible. You started looking for snow leopards in, what did you say, 2008? 
No, um, in 2008, that was guiding trips for natural habitat in China, but we weren't going for snow leopards. We were just doing giant pandas and, and different stuff in the Szechuan Basin. So how long was it from your first trip to look for snow leopards to actually seeing one? How long of a span was that? So I did two, two major expeditions and didn't see one. And then on my third one in, in Ladakh in India, we, we definitely saw um, snow leopards on two different occasions. So I was able to get some really cool media and footage and stuff and share it and then was able to put my own trips together this winter. So I went and led my own, my own two expeditions this February. In, um, in a national park called Himis in, um, in Ladakh, which is up in the very northwest corner of India, the borders of Pakistan. And that is the, the videos that you have of the nice yurt-style tents and spotting right from camp. That's the area where you were at with your expedition this last time? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I've done th- three trips there so far. And were you guys successful? Yeah. Um, the first trip, we had 21 sightings in eight days up there. 21. So we basically saw at least one wow. snow leopard every day. And some of them might have been the same one where we saw the next day, but most of them were all different. We saw two family groups of mom and two cubs each. So that counts the way we count our sightings. That counts for six sightings. So we did very, very well. Yeah. And then the next trip after that, we didn't do as well, um, but we had probably six sightings. But we had an incredible encounter with a mom and two cubs that I got some awesome footage of. And they're playing and it was just it was just fantastic. It's some of the best mother and cub footage of snow leopards ever filmed. And they haven't really ever nobody's ever recorded them really, especially without a, a game camera, but very, very limited of the mom and cubs playing together. So to be able to watch that through a spotting scope and then get usable footage really was maybe my greatest hot wildlife experience in my life. So it was really fantastic. I can certainly see that being the case. Now conservation wise, we don't have a lot of data on snow leopard populations because people have only been paying attention for the last, what, 30, 40 years, right? Exactly. So where where do they estimate the population is in China and versus uh, India? Um, China's got the vast majority of the snow leopards. India's just got several hundred. But China, they're not really sure how many they have. And that, and that number is constantly getting revised with a couple different things. So the snow leopard habitat is really... Uh, fragmented around this giant area that's almost the size of the United States, from Mongolia all the way down to India, even Afghanistan, all the way through the Himalayas, all across the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau. Um, the IUCN had them as um, endangered, but they it got listed over to, or up to threatened. So they kind of upgraded their population estimates and how, how endangered they were. And that, that's And that's been criticized a lot by snow leopard experts. And the IUCN has certain ways that they can kind of figure out um, if a population is declining or increasing, how many there are and, and what kind of threats they face. But everybody that's involved in snow leopards pretty much um, really criticizes the IUCN. That's not really a good thing to do. Um, and what they do is they blame it on just poor science. And the IUCN is not going out and collecting that data. They're just working with the data that's there. And the data that's there is just, it's very incomplete, maybe um, not accurate. So, but right now there's what we would think is the global population is maybe 4,000 to about 6,500 right now of total wild snow leopards. And that's, that's not very much when you consider the giant area. Can you tell us what the IUCN is just for people that don't know what that acronym stands for? International Union of the Conservation of Nature. So it's, um, it's basically like an international organization that sort of oversees and monitors endangered species. And they're the ones that 
you know, like let's say United States, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might say the grizzly bear is endangered or threatened, but the IUCN would be the one that would look at the, the species as a whole across the whole globe. So it's international organization. You know, I think of uh, wildcat populations here. There's, you know, the whole state of Wyoming, the whole state of Colorado, for that matter. It's all mountain lion habitat, but that doesn't mean that there's a lot of cats around. So it doesn't, I guess, necessarily surprise me, especially with the the habitat being fragmented, that the populations, you know, but somewhere between four and six thousand. That that wouldn't be surprising. And there's there's no way to know what the historical data is uh, because it just wasn't collected. You know, I'm glad to see that at least you've, you're able to establish some trends after 30 or 40 years. Uh, but what are they doing conservation-wise in China currently? So it's, I spent some time in China. They, there's several organizations that are working on it. Um, in India is the one that's working the, probably the best, most efficiently, and protecting their populations and studying them. But as far as their threats go, I mean, how are these countries addressing the threats? Probably the biggest threat is habitat loss. And that's just pretty, pretty standard across the globe for most animals. It's um, just losing habitat because people move into the valley. The snow leopards have to move out. They've killed off all their native prey. You know, their mines going in and um, just basically turning it into agricultural grazing land instead of snow leopard habitat. That's the number one threat. Um, another threat is the livestock depredation. So snow leopards, when they run out of their food, and that's the big problem. You see in, in, in Tibetan Plateau and in the Himalayas, that, that culture is Buddhist. And, and the Buddhists don't like to kill animals. So that's the saving grace for most Himalayan species, um, is that they don't kill animals. The only animal that, that they make an exception for is yak. They will um, raise yak and then slaughter yak for food because they don't really have enough resources up at that elevation to support people. So they have to make an exception. But otherwise, all the other creatures, they don't want to kill anything. However, the, the big threat is that as they're grazing the goats and the yak especially, um, it's taking away and displacing and overgrazing the whole Tibetan plateau. So the, the native prey species, the ibex or gali sheep, the blue sheep, um, these, these animals, they're lowered in numbers. So snow leopards, what they do is they'll switch over to the domestic livestock. And even though the Buddhists don't want to kill the snow leopard, these guys, I mean, often are going to be go herding goats and stuff. They earn about one or two dollars a day, which is severely below poverty line. A snow leopard can jump into a corral of sheep and kill every single one in one night. So that leads to the the retribution killings, is what we call them. So you're just you're just trying to fight all these all these things and try to make a balance. And that's really where the tourism comes in, is because that's really in a lot of these Asian countries and these developing places. Um, you could have an NGO go in, like World Wildlife Fund, and try to do public outreach, or you can have a wildlife department, local wildlife department, that knows hey, this is an endangered species, you're not supposed to kill it. But when you get these super remote areas and these uh, very, very poor people, um, there's not really a lot of law. So the only way that you can um, save these animals really is to put a value on them, so that the locals have a, an investment, they have an alternative income. So that's the beautiful thing about um, being involved in snow leopard tourism is uh, we basically, like the, the expeditions that we do in India, we hire 13 staff to maintain our camp. We, the reason we can see so many snow leopards is because we hire these spotters. 
that basically give, we give the we give them Swarovski scopes. Um, actually, Swarovski's been uh, donating a lot of scopes to us all as well. And these guys basically train themselves and train each other how to spot the, the mountain ghosts, which is one of the most difficult animals in the world to spot um, in this habitat. And they're really good at it. We can basically boast a 100% success rate uh, over the four years that that five years that that company's run expeditions up there, 100% of every single expedition has seen snow leopards in the wild. So now the popularity is growing. And it's an animal that 10 years ago, if I said, oh, animal on my bucket list is a snow leopard to see in the wild, it's a laughable statement. Never. And you can maybe 30 years, like you go spend 20 years up there, you might see one, you probably won't. But now you got a 100% chance of seeing them. So we're just providing this incredible source of income to the locals. The porters, horsemen that take our gear into camp, the cooks, they're all locals, the spotters, and then camp managers. So there's this like small thriving industry of locals that live there that treasure those snow leopards. They're going to be far better at keeping people from killing the snow leopards for whatever reason than any, say, ranger or any kind of um, you know, government organization or anything like that. So, so that's the, really the beautiful thing about it. What are the times of year that you're going? Is it late fall, early winter? And is that the only time? Or is this a trip you could go on all year round? Because there's all these other species that, as I was watching some of your stuff, you've got the Tibetan wolf and you've got the brown bear. Can you see those types of species too when you're going after the snow leopards? Or is it just that time of year and your chances are pretty much snow leopards? And that's the, obviously that's the main focus, but... Can you see these other things too? And what is that time period that you guys are up there? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as it gets colder and you get more snow, um, the snow leopard prey starts to go down from the high, highest elevations. So in the summertime, the blue sheep and uh, ibex and those guys are at the very, very top, the highest elevations. It's impossible to see them, basically. So it's all, like theoretically impossible to see snow leopards in the summer. But in the, in the winter, they start coming down to maybe thirteen to 14,000 feet where we can actually access. So um, that's when we go up. The, the season kind of starts in January, and it can kind of go up until maybe, maybe April. And then the animals start to go higher. Um, but that's for the snow leopards. So, of course, we see the snow leopard prey, and we do see Tibetan wolves. Um, I see a lot of really incredible you know, birds of prey, like the griffin. Um, and the Lammergeier, and so all these animals that I could talk for a long time about. But uh, but you asked about the brown bear. Um, the brown bear goes into hibernation around November and comes out around March. So if you're in brown bear country, then some areas don't, it, the habitat's not good for brown bears. But there is some areas in the Himalayas that really are good for brown bears. And uh, that would be, a, the, my, one of my next goals would be try to set up some bear viewing programs in those areas that have brown bears in India, and then maybe in the future also in China. And that would be in the springtime and the fall, um, when the bears are easier to see. So that would be different times of year. So you can't really mix the two. Uh, maybe in late March, you could do snow leopards, but you're going to have to drive uh, like a whole day to do a separate brown bear trip, and it's possible. Yeah. And um, that's another species that really needs help with the tourism, because they that's a species just like everywhere in grizzly country. Um, they're conflicting with people and then the bears always lose so we got to put a value on them so that there's right yeah that's that's really the mantra of the whole thing so you talked a little bit about elevation when you get january through april i mean they're coming down to 13 14 000 feet 
What are the extremities? What are we talking 16, 17, 18,000 feet that they'll be at throughout the summer? Just, just as a reference for people. Yeah. The, um, there's a lot of those mountains in the area up there are 20,000 feet and higher. So yeah, you'd be talking about 16, 17, 18,000 feet is would kind of be the, the range where the snow leopards are. Yeah. And it's just, it's just really difficult to, to see them in the summertime. So I guess, my next question is, I mean, you're doing these trips for viewing purposes for the photographic audience. What kind of opportunities would be presented on, on one of these trips for a photographer? I mean, obviously using Swarovski spotting scopes, we're not necessarily going to get spectacular images with the, the camera equipment that we have, but there are some opportunities to shoot through the scope, that kind of thing. But what about uh, prey species and then, photographic and video potential on these trips that you're taking people on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's see, the first, the prey species, the blue sheep, are not afraid of people, so we can get spectacular shots of the blue sheep. Um, the snow leopards and the Tibetan wolves, which are kind of the two focuses, um, it, it's often very, very far away. So we have to be very careful to set expectations that people don't get disappointed. I mean, you people go up there, when, you got to go up there with big glass. And so what I was using to get usable footage and a lot of the footage I got, even I cropped it in, it's still really poor quality. Um, it's not nothing. It's not great quality stuff. Um, but the stuff that I did get was good. I was using a Sony, to the new 200-600 to with a 2X, shooting 4K and then cropping it down probably to a quarter. But the footage, because it's 4K, the resolution's high enough that I could get stuff that's actually nice to look at. For stills, it's similar. You need to be minimum of 600 millimeters and then have to crop. So high-resolution cameras are... Are, are good. Digiscoping, yeah, that works, but of course that doesn't give you a great quality of image. Um, so if you see pictures, if you get on the on Google and you're seeing the full frame beautiful pictures of snow leopards, um, like you would with animals from Yellowstone, those those animals are tame snow leopards that may be from a ranch in Montana where you pay a bunch of money and then the snow leopard can jump around in the snow. So that you can't get that in the wild. The only way you can get up close footage and pictures of snow leopards in the wild um, is with the remote cameras. Yeah, that's just that's just the reality of it. Um, we wouldn't want to be disturbing the snow leopards, and yeah, so there's limits and things like that. But you know, usually you're spotting snow leopards from sometimes a mile away, um, sometimes half a mile, sometimes um, a quarter of a mile, sometimes closer. It just depends if you if you, they have one on a kill and, and you kind of get up on it, but. Uh, yeah, so it's just it's just a different kind of photography. So for people that are just looking for a trophy image, like the ones they see on the web that are fake, um, they'll be disappointed for sure. So you have to have people that you have to set the expectations. I mean, you, you have to be a person that understands how amazing a snow leopard is and how lucky, because it really is. I mean, in my opinion, I can't think of an animal on the planet that's more challenging or more mysterious and mythical to see. So that's the value in it. And if you just get a picture when the snow leopard's this big and quality's not that great, it's a wild, you saw a wild snow leopard. I mean, that ranks up there with a wild giant panda and, and animals that are just almost impossible. Well, I, yeah, and I think probably the number of people in the world that can say that is is minimal. Yeah. I, I mean, you've probably guided most of them <laughs> or the, that organization probably has, you yeah. know, because it just didn't happen for so long. No. No, and it's just, it's a new thing. It's an exciting thing. And it's, it's kind of interesting is that all these 
problems that the snow leopard's having. And tourism actually is, is the saving grace to it. Um, there's a lot of different conservation techniques that are happening and, and strategies. Uh, but the tourism really, I think, is, is the, has the most potential, is the most effective. Because you've got to get the locals excited and um, employed by having snow leopards there. And so with all these problems, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that, but with all, I just finished the one thought. With all these problems that they're having, it's just like they all of a sudden appeared as an opportunity. Like, okay, I'll let you look at me and please help me. And I think that's just really important. When I was guiding polar bear trips, that was the, the really kind of true um, iconic species that we kind of use to get people to think about climate change and global warming. Well, the snow leopard is, is similar. There's similar uh, global warming problems that are happening in the Himalayas, um, and the snow leopards face a, a huge threat. And we need to think about climate change a lot. And any of these little iconic animals that can sort of, you know, bring attention and love, these charismatic creatures, we, the more the better. So the snow leopard is the next one. And what changes have they seen in the Himalayas that, you know, documented changes as far as snow levels? And is it, they measuring glaciers, you know, like they do in Alaska and in the north? Is that kind of the same measurements that they've been able to take? They are. Um, they're, they're seeing, I mean, any, if you talk to any local, there's, there's no if or that. I mean, there's a huge difference in the climate. The old timers remember and now, and so they're seeing this, this fast disappearance of glaciers. And those glaciers, because it, what, this area, snow leopard habitat, is a, is a desert. And so they get snow that builds up in the winter, especially at the very high altitude. And then that snow melt, or the glacier melt, will feed these rivers and allow people and animals and everything to survive. Um, so when you lose the glaciers, all of a sudden you lose these ephemeral water sources. Um, and, it can, and it's basically causing destabilization of, this, of the human populations there. So that's never good for wildlife. The other thing it's doing is, as it's, as it's getting warmer, um, the, the herd, herders and stuff are able to use higher elevations, which really are the snow leopard and the snow leopard's preys, sort of last paradises or last strongholds, is that, oh, now it's warm enough, we can take our goats up there, and um, there's, more, there's more grass up there, and they're displacing, like the last little remnant habitat spot. So that's how climate change is, is playing a big role in that. So... Yeah, it's just something that a lot of times the world, I mean, if I talked about why polar bears face climate change problems, I think it would be very few people out there that I would be explaining anything they don't already know. Um, but with snow leopards, very few people know about that. Certainly. So the ambassadors or the people that are out there that are realizing that tourism is what's going to help save the species, does that word spread around the locals? Because obviously we're only touching a very small portion of those people that actually see the benefit of the tourism. But the word's got to be spreading a little bit, right? Amongst all these locals that say, you know what, you can make 2 or $3 a day doing this, but if you bring in some sort of ecotourism type situation, you can have a much better source of living is that something that where the word is spreading and it's going to take a while just because that it's such a vast area you said is what the size of the united states right yeah yeah that's a that's a great point i mean where we're operating our programs in Hemis national park inside the national park those villagers are happy and, and everybody understands now like this is great and the coolest job in the world would be i'm going to be a snow leopard spotter you know, and have these photographers, you know, tip American dollars, and they're going to make way more than if they started herding goats. So it allows them to shift away from grazing. Why do I even bother raising the goats? We're all kind of figuring out that the more goats, the less snow leopards. The snow leopard is a gold mine. 
So, but that's just in Hemis National Park. So the, the really long-term goal is uh, this program, we're learning lessons. So when I, like, for instance, when I went to Qinghai province with Philip, Philip wanted me to maybe help bring groups up. We could start some tourism. And I said, man, it's just, it's impossible to find these cats. It's just, it's too, we don't know what we're doing. So I'm going to go over to India and work down there, and I'm going to learn some lessons about how it works. Now we know you need to have trained spotters spread out. You need to, you need to do these things. So we're learning lessons that we can um, put in other places. So what our company, Voyager Expeditions, that works with the, the Snow Leopard um, Trust, one of the things that we're doing is um, last fall sent the two most famous snow leopard trackers. Uh, there's three, like kind of the, the senior ones, that, the ones that the, have become famous because the BBC used them and, and they, they basically set up the remote cameras for all these incredible blue chip nature films that are kind of brought the snow leopards out. It's, it's up to these three guys. And Dorje Stanzen, um, Smanla Sering, and Kenrab Funsag. These guys are like the masters of snow leopard conservation, protection, spotting. They're, they're Ladakhi people that are from that area. They work for the wildlife department and they basically, we hire them as our spotters. So they know what they're doing and they're training all the younger generations, but we sent them up to Kyrgyzstan um, to train those local rangers how to, how to do it. And so, so maybe trying to get to Kyrgyzstan to that, those national parks. And they know that there's snow leopards there, but there might, I mean, they're just not really something that you, they could utilize as a resource. But when we teach them the skills um, and then the techniques, then it becomes something that's really viable. And so that's Kyrgyzstan. Other parts of India are adapting the same kind of programs. And let me just tell you a little bit more about the, that program. One of the greatest things about Hemis is, um, is when we pay pretty substantial fees in the national parks, and they've jacked the fees up to limit the number of people. So it's kind of like a, a concession in Africa. It's not great for everybody, but you don't want a thousand people in that, in that habitat. You just want a, a small number, and they're paying a high dollar. Well, that park fee basically goes over to um, fund projects for the community, which is really amazing. So it gets spread equally. So there's not really any competition that goes on. There's no fighting. Everybody benefits from these, these tourists. And where, where the projects go are solar panels for the villages to help the infrastructure there. We're giving them, of course, jobs. Um, oh no, and, then the, and then the fees go to building fences around some of their small plots of land in the summertime so that the, the wild animals don't come in and, and destroy their crops. And when I was talking about the predator, the depredation of the livestock, there is still some livestock there. They need, they need some to maintain their lifestyle. But you got to protect them. And um, the way you protect them is having corrals. Like you just, it's not that difficult. It's not that hard if you, if you try and, you, and they get some support to keep the snow leopards from killing the baby animals. You have to round up the sheep at night. You have to round up the baby axe at night and you put them into a, a predator-proof corral. So it's a stone wall, but then they, they pay for a chain link fence on the top. So all the, the tourism is just benefiting everything. So the, the whole thing, the whole system is just very healthy. And uh, yeah, so just back to that, you know, we just need to start getting the word out and then also adapting these, these kind of programs in other parts of snow leopard habitat so that there's not just one national park in India that has snow leopards and all the rest are gone. Right. The reason I was asking is when you, t when you talk about habitat loss and if some of that habitat loss is coming from more people moving into these valleys, but then you're dealing with global warming and so you don't have as much water. And if they're going to try to do agriculture in some of these valleys, then 
that whole model doesn't work. So if more people are moving in, and I don't think there's much we can do about that, if they see the snow leopard tourism as a, a viable thing, it's got to be a way better situation for the snow leopards than than the opportunity to go, you know, farm at 15,000 feet or 14,000 feet or whatever. You know, it, it just getting that word out and, and spreading it around is has got to be a good thing. It is. It's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is true. And, and it depends where in the snow leopard range you're talking about it. Everywhere's got its own certain problems. But um, yeah, it, this is just, it's just, there's a lot of problems that need to be addressed if we want to save these animals. And, you know, you try to think about, like, why why should you save snow leopards? Like, why do, why, what's the big deal? Like, we've got them in zoos. Like, does it, do they really have to be at the top of a mountain? You know, and, and it's just, and it's the same thing of, like, why do you need grizzlies in Montana and wolves in Montana when they, when they cause so much problems with people? Like, wh- is it really worth having them? I mean, these animals that are conflict with people. But what I always say is, it's like that, that's the spirit and the soul of the mountains. Like that is the, that's the character of the Himalayas. I mean, you're, you know you're in wild country that's been like that for a thousand years and we haven't messed it up when you've got snow leopards there. So to me, I mean, that's just that's the integrity of the land. So it's kind of an intangible um, thing, but it's something that I, I always try to preach to people to think about. And the, one example for people from the United States is, you know, when you're driving across Wyoming and you see the Wind River Mountains in the distance, like that's a that's an awesome mountain range. That's a wild mountain range. It's notoriously wild. But the grizzlies are gone. So when you're driving across and you see Yellowstone in the distance, or you see Banff, the Canadian Rockies, there's a different feel when you when you get out of the car and get on a trail. There is a different, there's electric feeling. That's wilder. That's the character of the land. So that's why I think it's really important for us to do what we can to save these potentially scary animals. Um, that's the character of the mountains, you know. So. Anyway, yeah. Well, just like talking with Drew a couple of weeks ago is the same thing. I mean, why do we have to have the pebble mine that is going to just screw up this habitat that we're going to screw up a lot of stuff, right? Do we have to screw up everything? Can we have these fairly large areas that can stay wild, that can stay genuine, can stay for future generations to come? Or do we just have to, you know, just wipe everything out and who knows what, you know? I just don't get it. I, I think this education and this talking about stuff and, and putting these animals up on a pedestal is, is so important because it does. It just says, hey, this is wild. This is real. This is how it's been for up until the last hundred years. And then we've basically just messed it up. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes if I'm talking to somebody and they just kind of look at me like, I don't know. I, I was lucky enough, and I guess you guys probably were too, I'm sure, to have gotten... I don't know, an early exposure to these kind of values or something. And um, so this younger generation, I think really we need to fight very hard to keep that going, that the younger generation isn't just so concerned with the new app and different technology things and they just forget about nature. When they're the ones making the decisions later, that's going to be where the things are really going to disappear. Um, that it won't be lots of guys like you um, and um, and Drew Hamilton's out there and me and Bazad Larry for snow leopards, and um, we have to we have to fight hard to maintain a value. So yeah, it's all through the whole world. So just one little battle at a time. Drew is um, definitely the leader of the Pebble Mine. I've been fighting that with him for a long time, and uh, and then Drew also talks about you know the butterfly conservation a lot. I do a lot of conservation with frogs, frog habitat in Arkansas here where I live. Now I'll do some snow leopards, and you just gotta 
get as many people excited and fight one battle at a time and, um, and work as a team. So, well, I think through education efforts like yourself, um, like you're doing with these snow leopards. And, and again, we thank you for allowing us to bring this to their attention and what Drew's done in Alaska. I think if we can educate the public, then it's not necessarily a battle anymore. It's a, you know, it's one that we're all, we're all in it together to save some of these species and some of these wild places. Like Mike said, I think that's what it's all about. It's all about, you know, not only educating the people, you know, the agricultural folks in the areas where you're going into, but also the people here. Yeah. And, and I think once we can do that, it's not a battle anymore. It's just an effort that we're all in together. Yeah. I think one saving grace is, is actually social media now. Like I don't have to go to the library. Like when I was a kid, read it. A, an article in a book to figure out about snow leopards or subscribe to a magazine, the information's out there. And I look at Instagram and it's really incredible. I think people get so excited about wildlife that um, it's so much easier and it's easier for us to share our own pictures, which feels good. And, and it's kind of a, a kind of a viral thing. It's just so much easier for, you know, I don't have to try to get on to be David Attenborough on TV to send a message out. Like I can just do it here with you guys. And people actually watch it and we can teach each other. So that's, that's really important. But just because there's probably a lot of wildlife photographers out there, there's another, another thing that as I'm talking about that, this is a little bit of a tangent. We have to also be very careful as producers and consumers of the wildlife social media that we are being very responsible with it. That we don't get Instagram fever where we'll do anything it takes at any cost to the animal to get that picture that's going to have lots of likes on it. So we have to keep it grounded and real so we don't start chasing animals around and chasing polar bears around in zodiacs so they can get the full frame wide angle shot of a bear in the water which stresses the bear out tremendously so there's a fine balance between that that being said if we do set those limits and those boundaries um, social media can really do wonders for for that contagious spread of you know conservation thoughts that's a message we preach on this podcast all the time it's you know the animals always got to come first yeah and then if you spend enough time and if you're diligent enough and respectful enough, you're still going to get that image. It just might take longer than, you know, that pursuit. That pursuit, it might get you that one thing, but what's the, what's the cost? It's just not worth it. Can you t- go through a tour? So if you're going to take a group, just give us a snapshot of the, the amount of travel. Because I was watching some of your videos and you're like, okay, well, we just flew from here to here and then we jumped in a car and went from here to there. And then we jumped in a four-wheel drive and went from here to there. And I mean, in terms of hours, let's say we're leaving from the United States, from leaving here to getting to your tent or your yurt style, very comfortable living quarters in where you're going to be doing this tour how long is that process? And then go one step further and just talk about, I mean, obviously you got to have a little bit of uh, physical fitness to do this kind of thing. Cause you guys are hiking around at 14, 15,000 feet. There's probably an acclimation process for a lot of people. Just give us an idea of what that's all about, because it's, you know, just watching your videos, I saw bits and pieces and I'm familiar with that kind of stuff. So I kind of got, I, I get it, but I'm not sure that everybody would be able to fully appreciate what goes into actually getting to that location. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's a great question. So I'll just kind of walk you through it. So first thing you have to do, and this is in India, we don't have, there's no snow leopard. Well, there is some uh, sort of custom 
expedition sort of stuff that can be done in China. And I know who can do that if anybody wants to reach out to me. But the way we do it in India now, you really want to see a snow leopard. You, this is how, how it works. You fly to Delhi. You get an e-visa. And, and, um, and then you fly to Delhi. And from Delhi, you get a one-hour flight to this village called Leh in Ladakh. And from there, um, you spend two days just acclimating so you don't do a whole lot. The first day, you don't basically don't leave the hotel because you're up around, uh, you already up, you jump up to from very low elevation in Delhi to 12,000 feet. So even a little higher. So you just got to chill for a day. And that's going to really um, help out. And then the second day, we explore around. And we go out to monasteries. Kind of something that I described to my folks is, you know, as we're going to these monasteries, I think it's, you know, there's a feeling you get when you get into the monastery. You're watching these monks and they're doing their prayers and their chants. It just, it's a contagious feeling that creeps in of just like focus and Zen and toughness and patience. And it just really grounds you. And I think that's, that's really important to kind of acclimate to the, ex mentally acclimate as well to the expedition where you are. I mean, this is definitely a different that kind of expedition than to fly to Africa and to ride around and see those animals. It's very different. I mean, this is, there's challenges involved and there's gonna, you have to be dis disciplined um, and patient and appreciative. And, and you get this, and I see, and if you do all those things, if you're disciplined, patient, the level of the wildlife sighting, I guess it will, it can, will give you the, what I, what I, what I think is the ultimate highest level of enlightenment as far as the wildlife sightings go. So anyway, so we do that for today. And then, then we drive for a couple of hours to the end of the road and we hike into the national park. Now, actually, we're going to likely move our camp to a different location that we don't have to hike into this time um, because there's really, really good habitat and there's also a couple small villages that aren't really seeing a lot of benefit from the tourism. So we're thinking of moving over there. It's a bit more pristine so we can spread out. There's other operations that operate where we go now. So we just want to, we want to make sure that everybody's happy. It's not just, for us, it's not just about selling tours and making money. This is about really making a difference in the conservation, using the tourism as a tool to do that. Okay, so we hike in and um, go up a few thousand feet. We get up to our base camp, um, which is uh, around 13,000. Then pretty much the spotters go out and find the animals for us. So there's, there's different valleys. And with these spotters are just incredible. The most in, the most skilled, disciplined wildlife spotters I've ever seen in my life on the planet. And I've been all over the world where you get the local spotters. These guys are the best of the best and the toughest of the tough. You'll go up, hike up to some ridge and use their scopes and just stare through the scopes for basically nonstop from, from sunrise to sunset. And then if they see something, they'll radio and we'll make a plan to go see it. A lot of times we just kind of hanging around the camp, going on little bird walks or blue sheep or doing landscape photography until we see, until we hear the call, Sean, 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 which means snow leopard, snow leopard. And I mean, you just get electrified. And, and then we just go to where we have to go. Sometimes it's basically outside the tent. Our first expedition um, this February, we hiked into camp. We hung out 30 minutes later inside the cook tent in our big yurt, all of a sudden, one of the spotters comes in, Dorje comes in, Sean, 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 right outside the door. He's looking up, we just look up on top of the ridge and mom and two cubs staring down at us. It was like that easy, 30 minutes we were there. Didn't have to do anything. So, but sometimes we 
you know, we will take hikes up in the valleys and explore, and that's part of the fun as well. So as how good of a shape do you have to be in? If you're not in good shape at all, you're, it's just going to be less pleasant. Um, you just have to be kind of medium shape, I think. Um, and if you're in really, really good shape, then your you're you're, will will split up and do different kind of hikes. Like anybody wants to do the hot, hard one way up there, and then if you're in really good shape, they'll go. And some people just hang around camp. Some people do an easy hike. So it just, you know, we're, we're pretty, um, and just do the best we can to make sure everybody sees snow leopards to the best of their physical ability. So just, we kind of wait and just wait till the spotters go find it for us. And then we, then we head out. And then, uh, with snow leopards, they're active at night, early in the morning, and then also late in the evening. And in daytime, they go find a hot rock and they just sit in the sun and go to sleep. So a lot of times, if you see one in the morning and then you'll go find where you see where it beds down, then you go and you just wait. Okay, well, about 3.30 he's going to get up and we're going to be able to see him move across the ridge. So there's a lot of that. Um, sometimes we will sit and just wait and watch um, for a long time. And then all of a sudden, boom, there he comes. And, and then we get, we get the sighting. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of it, I guess. The other thing that I wanted to say is one of the, the thrills about the snow leopards, and I've done this three times, no, several times, is actually the flight from, say, Chengdu and Sichuan to the Qinghai, when you get into snow leopard country, to the Qinghai Plateau, it's a four-hour flight. But in India, it's Delhi to Leh. And just flying over the Himalayas, if you've never seen the Himalayas before, wow. I mean, it is just, it, it's, it makes the, I mean, no offense, it makes the Rockies look like foothills. It's unbelievable. And it's just vast. It's an ocean of Denali's. You know, it's an ocean of mountains that are twice the size of the Colorado Rockies. It's just forever. And then you just go, you land there and you're up there and it's just like you're on another planet. And so uh, it's just the whole thing to me is the thrill of it. The whole, the whole journey. Um, and that, that's when, you, when I come home is like, that was like this most fulfilling wildlife experience in my life because I had to go through all that. And then, wow. And then luckily I, I appreciate seeing the snow leopard in the scope. And I'm not upset that it's not a full frame picture with a 400 lens that it's a snow leopard. You know? So that's, that's the magic part about it. So what's the length of those trips as far as two weeks. when you leave the U.S. to when you're back? Or yeah. Is it 14 days? Yeah. Yeah. We're up at camp um, eight days. That's what I was going to ask. And I, I think the effort always makes the memory, right? Yeah. The more effort you have to put into something, the more it's going to mean to you. And that's what brings the tears when you finally do get the sighting is just that effort and that, you know, the work that it took to get you to that point. So I can certainly relate, not to a wild snow leopard sighting, but I can, I can certainly relate to that sentiment. Oh yeah. So let's. Uh, I just had a couple of other questions, and then we can let you go. But getting off of the snow leopard topic, and now going back to like brown bears, and then Borneo and Arkansas. What is that path? Did you just decide? Did you live? In, obviously, you lived in Alaska full time when you were going to school, right? And then you were guiding up there, and, and then I saw you had a Homer address for a while. What brought you to Arkansas? Um, it just, I think that, um, that my wife and I just wanted to do something different, get closer to roots. I grew up in North Carolina, so I kind of miss certain things like frogs and being able to grow stuff and have longer, early, you know, shorter winters. And, and, um, and it's just something different. For me, it was just move down to a new ecosystem. We live way out in the middle of nowhere in the Ozarks in the woods, and so... It's uh, frogs and snakes and 
animals that we didn't have in Alaska that I missed as a kid. And then, of course, there's family that's closer. So that's, that's kind of how that went. So for me, it's just exploring a whole new ecosystem. I mean, yeah, it's a karst topography area with limestone, beautiful waterways, and um, just insects and, you know, black bears and bobcats and, and just a whole different kind of set of critters and different climates. So for me, I'm a very ADD person. <laughs> I've always been. So that's why I've, if you look at my Instagram page, it's all over the map. Um, yeah, I just, um, I, like to, I like to see lots of variety. So I guess that's kind of where it, that came from. So, well, I thought it was a beautiful arrangement. If you can spend summers in Alaska and winters in Arkansas and then have this trip going to the Himalayas for a couple of months, I mean, that, that's a pretty dream life for someone like myself. I would, I would love that sort of situation. Tell us a little bit about the Borneo stuff. And is that something that you do every year? Are you done doing that now that you're doing the snow leopards or do you still try to hit everything up? I just shuffle around. I mean, so right now my schedule's done. So right now at this time because of the coronavirus is when my lifestyle isn't very good because everything's grounded. So I was supposed to be going to Borneo next week and I'm not. And then I'm supposed to go back again for do a second trip in April. I'm sorry, in May. And then summer in Alaska with July and August, September for brown bears. And then, um, then I was going to go, then I'm going to China to do two trips. So I just try to keep my um, hand in all the pots and shuffle around and not have as, as amazingly um, accommodating about letting me do that. And if, if I want to go or do something else, then, then I just have to train an expedition leader to run that place and then can spend more time over somewhere else. So, and for me, it's just cross-pollinating. That's what I try to do is I, I just learn so much from all these places that maybe I, I've learned lessons on the ecotourism in Borneo that I can, that I can relate to China um, and relate to, I mean, I went to Namibia this year to, to train some guides and then be a photo um, leader on an expedition. And I learned from them. I also taught them stuff. And, um, and so to me, it's just about cross-pollinating. Definitely very, um, how do you say, iron maybe in too many fires, but maybe that is a good thing in some ways. I would say it's a good thing. So uh, with this coronavirus thing, obviously nobody, none of us know what's going on, right? Everybody had all these plans and now everything is just kind of in limbo. So it's probably something where, I mean, especially if you're going to China, right? You've got to have this thought like, well, do I really want to go back there or do I need to wait? It's, I don't know. There's just no answer because I think about that constantly where we travel a lot for work. We travel a lot yeah. to go film wherever and you just you really can't plan on anything at the moment no no and it's just it's a mental game of um am i going to be really depressed because i lost so much income and lost the opportunity and am i going to get bored no what i want to do is make the most of it so i have more time to do a podcast on snow leopards natural habitat is trying to keep their people engaged in a healthy way so we're tomorrow um i'm going to launch with uh, ben bressler the founder of madhab we're going to launch a webinar series. We'll be doing one every day. So I'm going to do one a week. And tomorrow's the one I'm going to do is Why Are Bears So Cool as an introduction. And then next week I'm going to do frog ponds and how to, how to increase your habitat in your yard. You know, about planting natives and building frog ponds. And I'm going to talk about that. So let's kind of focus on nature. Nature is, what, nature is what's going to keep us grounded, um, I think, mentally, which is just as important as physically. And it's going to keep us positive. And I think that the other kind of idea that I had as a, a silver lining to this, there's a lot of silver linings, actually, when you think about it. Um, 
One of them is they, they don't eat wild animals in China anymore in Vietnam. So that's that's one thing. That, that That's over. Uh, the other one is, you know, so this is just a reminder that Mother Nature is in control of us. They Mother Nature, nature is in control. Whether it's a virus, whether it's climate change, it's just a reminder, hey, I know you guys want to control everything in the world, but you're not. It's it's me. You know, I'm nature. So I think that when you find out something that powerful, you know, I think it, it just reminds you that it deserves respect. So maybe we can just kind of think about it as, as that. Like, let's just focus on um, our yards and maybe some educational webinars and some podcasts and and dream about the future and then and then have a new lease on our respect for nature when it's over. I like what you said. It's a silver lining. It's it, There are some good things, and, and there's good things to come for all of this kind of stuff. Maybe it's a way to figure out how people can work remotely and not put as much as many miles on their cars every year. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we can learn from this, but I hope it returns to somewhat sense of normalcy after it's all over and we can get back out there and keep educating and keep conserving. And That final sentiment that you shared, I think, is a is a good one to leave our audience with yeah how do people find you brad i i think instagram is probably my favorite um thing to use now i'm also on facebook but i've maxed out my friends so but uh, brad joseph's photos on instagram and um yeah so i've just got hundreds of pictures with uh of animals from all over the world with a conservation message on everyone and then my snow leopard expeditions you can dm me if you want to do it um, for 2021, we're, we're already setting trips up for that. That's a Voyager Expeditions, V-O-Y-G-R. And they have an Instagram page as well. And uh, the other places I guide is Natural Habitat. And I've got to shout out them. They are um, the leader in conservation travel. They've always been. And they, they're the standard setter of using uh, travel for conservation. And that's so proud to be a part of them. So, um, yeah. So if you, if you want to go on a trip... Um, you got to go with the one that is focused on conservation and let's just all keep it in the, in the loop in a good way. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to hopefully, hopefully got some people out there that thinking about snow leopards and the world a little bit more. So yeah, just keep up the good work guys. Um, your podcast is awesome. Anytime you, you need a, another subject, give me a call and I'll talk about something else. Thanks, Brad. We greatly appreciate your time and thank you all. For listening to Wild and Exposed, please take some time to look at the YouTube content that Michael's been throwing up. Look at Brad's page on YouTube as well. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at Wild and Exposed, YouTube Wild and Exposed Podcast, and on Facebook at Wild and Exposed Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.